In October of 1909, Vancouver, British Columbia, they purchased their first motorized ambulance. 1909. At that time, a motorized and a new motorized ambulance was a very, very rare thing. However, the city of Vancouver, um, Vancouver, British Columbia, spared no expense to get the best possible and available vehicle, and that was a model 740 ambulance from New York. You know how much the city of Vancouver paid for that ambulance? They paid $4,000, which at that time would amount to more than $100,000 in today's currency. The day after the ambulance was put into use, the local newspaper ran this headline. City's first ambulance runs over tourists. That's right. Just hours after being on the streets, the ambulance accidentally killed an American tourist from Ohio who'd been shopping in downtown Vancouver. True story. So get this. The first passenger in the ambulance went to the morgue. A vehicle that was intended to help ended up doing what? Causing harm. Now, I don't, I don't know if you've ever ridden in an ambulance or not. Hopefully you haven't. Because most often when an ambulance is, shows up on the scene, something tragic has happened, right? It's usually nothing good. Well, th- this morning, David finds himself in a situation. He finds himself in a setting where multiple ambulances would have been called. You see, in our text this morning, David returns to the town that he's been staying at for 16 months, he and his men and their families and their wives and their kids. He returns to the town of Ziklag only to find that the entire town has been burned to the ground. Not only that, all the residents of that town, since he's been away with his men, have been kidnapped and taken away. You see, Faith, in 1 Samuel 30, David finds himself in a situation that many of us have experienced. And that is, David finds himself overwhelmed. He's overwhelmed, as we're about to see, with grief. He's overwhelmed with sadness. He's overwhelmed with pain. He's overwhelmed by the tragedy that has just fallen upon his family and the families of his men. And the question that the text raises as we're studying the life of David is this, and that is, where will David turn to for help? Where is he going to turn to? Who is he going to turn to in the face of such an overwhelming tragedy? Where is he going to look for guidance? 
And faith, this really is the question you and I are confronted with every time we experience an overwhelming situation, isn't it? Where are we going to turn? What are we going to look to when the circumstances and difficulties of life seem overwhelming? Now, I'm not going to insult your intelligence. All of you know the Sunday school answer to this question, right? Can we just get that on the table? We all know the Sunday school answer to this question. Yet, why is it that we often fail to do what we know we're supposed to do? Why is it when tragedy or difficulty comes upon us that we often turn to things that we know intuitively cannot deliver or provide what we're seeking? Well, I believe our passage this morning provides some helpful answers to that question. So if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 30. That's page 251 in that paperback Bible in the seat in front of you. As you're turning there, let me give you the context. Last week, we looked at 1 Samuel 29, a very short chapter, a chapter that resolved the conflict and the predicament that David got himself into through lying. And in that short chapter, we learned this really foundational biblical truth, and that is you need deliverance from yourself, not through yourself. Do you remember this? This, this chapter, chapter 29, illustrates, David's life illustrates in this chapter this foundational biblical truth that, friend, if you can hear my voice, you need deliverance from yourself, not through yourself, right? As we've been studying the life of David up until this point, we've learned that he needed to be delivered from lions and tigers and bears, oh my, right? As well as the Philistines and Saul. Yet arguably the greatest deliverance David needed was from himself right? In faith, David is not alone. Because of indwelling sin, you and I are in need of deliverance too. And praise the Lord, that is precisely why Jesus Christ was sent to earth. For what does the Apostle Paul teach us in 2 Corinthians 5 verses 14 through 15? A passage no doubt many of you are familiar with. Remember what he says there. Paul teaches that Christ died for all so that those who live might no longer what? Live for themselves, but instead live for Christ. This is to say Christ died so you, Christian, would be delivered from your self-absorbed, self-focused, destructive way of living. Unless we be tempted to leave this foundational biblical truth in the abstract, what I'd like to do just for a moment is just press in just a minute here and to show how this truth bears relevance, relevance in every area of our life. So let's, let's apply this to marriage, Okay. Christian, 
You know what David's example in 1 Samuel 29 and Paul's instruction in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15 is saying to us? They're saying to you, Christian married couple, they're saying to you that the biggest problem in your marriage is you. Faith, please hear me. A spouse who points the finger and says that the other person is the greatest problem in their marriage, that spouse not only has a wrong and deficient understanding of themselves, but in their pride, they're also cutting themselves off from the grace of God that is needed to bring healing and restoration to their marriage. Such a person, when they say, you're the greatest problem in our marriage, they are living, and I'm saying my words carefully here, they're living contrary to biblical truth. On the other side, a spouse who says, I am the greatest problem in my marriage. They are living in accordance with biblical truth. Why? Because they have a right understanding of themselves. They know that because of their indwelling sin and their self-centeredness, they're aware of this. They read the Bible to know who they are and what their problem is, and as they read Scripture and they see what God has to say about them, they realize that because of their indwelling sin and their self-centeredness, they're the greatest problem in their marriage. Not the guy or the girl next to me. I say this illustratively so we could see that we need deliverance from ourselves. So, if the solution is not within us, where is the solution then? Well, our text this morning answers that question. In this text, we discover the positive remedy to the negative diagnosis we learned in 1 Samuel 29. So if you would look with me now in your copy of God's Word, 1 Samuel 30. And let's learn together where our help comes from. Follow along with me in your copy of God's Word as I read this text. So again, David and his men just breathe a sigh of relief because the Philistines say, go home, David. We, we don't need you. So they make the long trek back and we pick things up in verse 1 of chapter 30. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, so it's been a long travel, okay, these guys have been traveling for a while. On the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Can you imagine that? What would you do if you came home from a long trip to find your house burnt to the ground and your spouse and your kids kidnapped? Can you imagine how awful? Look at how David and his men respond there in verse 4 or verse 5. 
I'm sorry, verse 4. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. They're exhausted from traveling three days. They get home to this situation and they wail and they weep and they cry till they have no more. They're completely spent. Verse 5, David's two wives also had been taken captive. Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. Now, let's just think here for a moment. Why do you think the author specifically mentions that David's wives had been taken captive? Because I want you to think about this. This is an unnecessary detail. Because earlier in verse 3, the author clearly told us that everyone was taken, women and children, right? In verse 3. So why is the author making mention of this? Why do you think? Why do you think the author is doing this? It's more personal for David? Yeah? Any other thoughts? Why in the world would he make this what seems to be a redundant detail? I'll tell you why. You know what the author is doing? He's widening the lens to help us see how this particular story in David's life connects to the overarching story of the Bible. Stay with me here, okay? In the opening chapters of the Bible, we learn that God created Adam and Eve in his image. We all remember this, right? However, they sinned when tempted by Satan. And consequently, we now are all under the curse of sin and the judgment of God. As sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, we are sinners by nature and by choice. We're still, as Basil articulated a moment ago, because of our sin, we all are alienated from God and under his wrath. Yet after Adam and Eve sinned, in Genesis 3.15, God promised Eve that from her seed there would come one who would deliver mankind and crush the head of the serpent. Remember this? From Eve, there's going to come a child. There's going to come one who's going to deliver mankind. And this is the grand promise that drives the biblical story. So from Genesis 3 onward, as we're reading our Bibles carefully, we're on search for this deliverer, this seed from the woman who's going to rescue us from the judgment and sin we've earned for our sin. And as we work our way through the Bible, we see a narrowing focus, right? We first know that's going to be someone from Eve. Then in Genesis 12, we learn that it will come from the seed of Abraham, by the end of Genesis, we discover that this promised seed, this promised one, will come from the tribe of Judah. So a king will come from the line of Abraham, from the tribe of Judah, who will bring God's saving promises to pass. And who happens to show up in 1 Samuel 16? A shepherd boy from the tribe of Judah who is anointed by the Holy Spirit to be Israel's king, David. 
Stay with me here, okay? And although David doesn't know it yet, in eight chapters from now, in 2 Samuel 7, God makes it clear that this promised seed, this promised deliverer who will crush the head of the serpent, that king, that deliverer is going to come from David's line. So do you see what's going on here? This is no insignificant detail. The author is showing us that this raid of the Amalekites is yet another attack on the promised seed of the woman who will bring forth God's saving promises and bring forth the Messiah. You know what's happening here? The Amalekites are playing the role of Satan like he was back in the Garden of Eden. And as we're about to see now, David's going to show himself to be a true and better Adam, one who actually rescues his bride. And notice how he goes about this. Look again, or look at rather there in verse 6. Okay, so they're weeping. David's wives have been taken. Verse 6, and David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him. Man, as if his day couldn't get any worse. Okay? <laughs> the whole thing is burned to the ground. They've taken everybody away. He's weeping and beyond exhausted. And the people are like, you know what, David? We blame you. We want to stone you. Because all the people were bitter in soul. And this is for free. Bitter people want blood. Friend, if you want vengeance on people, you have bitterness in your heart. Bitter people want blood. Because the people were bitter in soul for each of his sons and daughters. And then here's the key to the whole chapter, this phrase. But David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. David strengthened himself in what? The Lord, his God. His God. Now notice what we see next here. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod, so Abiathar brought the, brought the ephod to David. And David, and here's a big word, inquired of the Lord. And he said, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? David inquired of the Lord. And I just want to point out what humility and what a Godward-focused request this is. I don't know about you, but if someone burned my house to the ground and took my wife and kids, I don't need to ask anybody what I'm doing next. I'm going after them. But David's like, I need to inquire of the Lord. This is the first time he's done this since chapter 23, and actually it's the first time he's spoken of the Lord since chapter 26. What a contrast to how he behaved in the earlier chapters, right? David here, in humility, is putting his desires in submission to what God wants. So he inquires of the Lord. And notice the Lord's response. The Lord promises victory. He answered him, referring to the Lord, the second half there, verse 8. Pursue, for you shall surely overtake 
and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Brezor, Bezor, excuse me, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor. Now, I, I want you to, to just understand for a moment. Don't misunderstand these guys to be weak. Don't misunderstand them to be wimps. Remember, they had traveled three days back to Ziklag. They then wept until they had no more energy. Then David inquires of the Lord, and they get ready, and they head out for another day's journey to find these guys. These guys are spent and exhausted. Without any rest, they're sent to go find their attackers. And, by the way, at this point, keep in mind, we know it's the Amalekites, but David doesn't. That is until what we see here in verse 11. So they're going on their way, verse 11. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. Notice how generous David and his men are and kind they are to this guy. They gave him water to drink. They gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. You know what? They probably, it would have been as good as that dessert that Sarah brought, okay? Just good, delicious food, okay? And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong? And where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, will you, will you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hand of my master, and I will take you down to this band. Consider the kindness of God's providence here, right? This, this Amalekite master left this guy for dead. He was sick. He was probably dead weight. So he's like, you know what? We're just going to leave you to die. Think about it. Little did that Amalekite master know at the moment that his discarded slave is ultimately going to prove to be the undoing of him and the entire Amalekites, right? What a coincidence, right? Our coincidences are God's providences. Verse 16. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. Um, as many commentators have pointed out, the fact that they are dancing, it's not like they're just partying at a disco or anything like that. Dancing was often associated with Cele religious celebrations. What the Amalekites are most likely doing is they're singing and worshiping to their pagan gods, thanking them for these spoils. And as we're going to see, there's, there's, an, there's the underlying um, echoes back to the Exodus here, right? Like the Egyptians of old who are celebrating their gods, these, they're celebrating their gods, but like a new Moses, David is going to come in 
and show them what's up. <laughs> All right? Verse 17. And here it is. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Notice the text goes out of its way. Think of how often it says David, right? David recovered everything, not only his wives, but all that was taken. And you know what this text is saying, specifically verse 18? It's saying this, in writ large, God is faithful to his promises. In verse 8, what did God say to David? Surely you will overtake them. Surely you will recover everything. And this verse that I just read says, yep, God delivered on his promise. God is faithful to his word. Amen? Now notice how this passage concludes. We see David giving good gifts. He's a generous king. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who have been left at the brook Bezor. And they went out to meet David and to meet with people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Look, hey, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered except that each man may lead away his wife and his children and depart. These men, the text calls worthless for a reason. You see, while God did not give specific instructions about what to do with the spoils from this raid, God had given clear laws concerning how plunder was to be divided between those who fought and everyone else. You can read it in Numbers chapter 31. There the law states that those who fought received a greater share of the spoil. However, everyone shared in the fruits of the victory. These worthless men, you know what they were doing? They were being greedy. They said, no, we're the ones who fought. We earned it. I did it. I deserve it. But notice how David responds. He rightfully reminds them that they didn't earn this victory, but rather it was given to them by the Lord. Notice what he says next. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has what? Given us. He has preserved us and has given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down to battle, so shall his share be to who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statue and a rule from Israel that day forward to this day. So David is taking the law from Numbers 31, applying it to this situation and codifying it. 
Then David came to Ziklag and sent part of the spoils to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here's a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those at Bethel and Ramoth of the Negev and Jatir and Ariar and Sifmoth and Eth Samoa and Rachel and the city of the Jeremahelites and the city of the Kenites and Hormah and Borashan and Athek and Hebron for all the places where David and his men had roamed. So he's taking these spoils and he's generously bestowing gifts upon the people of his soon-to-be kingdom. Amen and amen. In the game of Monopoly, every time you pass go, what do you receive? Yeah, $200, right? Now, Monopoly has two types of cards. Do you remember what they're called? There's, there's one called Chance, and what's the other one called? Community Chess. Community Chess. Very good. Very good gamers you guys are. Now, do, do you know that every Chance card, every Chance card, that instructs you to advance to a certain property, say like St. Charles Place, it always includes this phrase, you know, advance to St. Charles Place, pass, go, and collect $200. Here's an example of one, right? Advance to St. Charles Place, if you pass, go. Every chance card is like this, with the exception of one. Not go to jail. There's one chance card where it says, advance to Illinois Avenue, and that's it. It mentions nothing about passing go and collecting $200. Every other card makes that explicitly clear. If you pass go, collect $200. This one just says, no matter where you're at, you go to Illinois Avenue, but you're not getting the $200. What a bummer of a card, right? I mean, who wants to skip go and miss out on getting $200? Don't push the analogy too far. <laughs> Thank you for your graciousness here. <laughs> but many Christians can do something very similar to that chance card when they read their Bible, especially the Old Testament. What I mean is, in their zeal to apply it to themselves, they can skip over one very important step. See, as we've talked about, there's really two ways to read the Bible. You can either read it as a book mainly about you, or you can read it as a book mainly about Jesus. If the Bible is mainly a book about us, and here's how we read it. We move from the text to us directly. So when we read a story in the Old Testament, we immediately ask, well, how does this apply to me? How does this apply to us? But if the Bible is mainly about Jesus, here's how we read it. We move from the text to Jesus, then how it applies to us. We still get to us, but first we must relate the text 
to the central figure of the scriptures, and that's Jesus. We could say this. To read the Bible mainly about us, as being mainly about us, is like getting to advance to Illinois Avenue without pass and go. We skip over Jesus, the most important part. And you see, the reason why we mustn't skip over Jesus is because it's only through Jesus Christian. Please hear me. It's only through Christ and what he's done for you that you're going to be able to do what is exemplified in the text we just read. So, for example, in our passage this morning, you know what we see David doing? It's It's the key to the whole chapter. David, in the midst of overwhelming difficulty and struggles... David strengthens himself in the Lord. In fact, we could summarize the message of this text as an exhortation, which is simply this. Christian, strengthen yourself in a generous God. When life seems overwhelming, when things are hard, this text is inviting us and calling us to strengthen ourselves, not in ourselves, but in our generous God. And I say generous God for a reason. As Old Testament scholar Peter Lightheart has correctly observed, the, the structure of this chapter emphasizes not so much David's military prowess, but the gifts that he gives. This text is trying to highlight the generosity of David as a king. Especially the second half, right? However, it needs to be stated that the only reason why David is both generous and has anything to give is because it first came from God. Amen? That is, it was God who strengthened David and gave David the victory. God generously strengthened David. And faith, the way we strengthen ourselves in the Lord is through David's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Stay with me here. You see, Christian, because Jesus himself, who lived the perfect sinless life we failed to live, because Jesus perfectly strengthened himself in the Lord, in the overwhelming situation of the Garden of Gethsemane, because he strengthened himself in the Lord, he was then able to joyfully go to the cross to save us from our sins. Jesus is the promised deliverer spoken of in Genesis 3.15. So because Jesus was obedient and exemplified all that we are called to be, this means so that now all of us who belong to God by faith in Christ... We have the Spirit of Christ dwelling within us to empower us to do the same. You see, as David illustrates in this text and the Lord Jesus models in the New Testament, you want to know what it means to strengthen yourself in the Lord? To strengthen yourself in the Lord is to very simply this. It's to listen to and obey God's word. It's to remember the promises God has made to us through his word, then live in light of them. 
we're able to relate to the Lord and strengthen ourselves in the Lord because of what David's son has accomplished for us on our behalf. And I believe this text, and what I want to do is just for a couple brief, brief moments here, I want, I want to just point out how I believe this passage emphasizes three reasons why we ought to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. Okay? So here's the main idea. Strengthen yourself in a generous God, a God who is gracious and kind. And the first reason that I, this text highlights why we ought to strengthen ourselves in the Lord and not something else is because troubles will overwhelm you. They will. Look at how this chapter again, begins. Look again at verses 1 through 4. When David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. Then verse 4, Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Troubles, friend, will overwhelm you. Who knows what well-known book begins with these words, okay? See, I'm going to read the first couple lines. See if you know what this is called. Quote, I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there's gum in my hair. And when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard, and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running, and I could tell it was going to be a... Good job, good job, yes. Yes. This is from the book. Yes, with grandkids. Alexander, and uh, let's say together, the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Right. As the title of the book suggests... The book follows Alexander through a series of, you guessed it, terrible situations. You know how the book ends? It ends with Alexander saying this. Here are the final words of the book. My mom says, some days are like that. Doesn't resolve anything. It just ends with him saying, some days are just like that. David in this passage is having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And you know what, friend? So will you. Because we live in a Genesis 3 world, to steal a line from Alexander's mom, some days are just like that. You see, contrary to popular thought, God will give you more than you can handle. God will give you more than you can handle. Did you know that? In fact, for some of you, that's exactly what's happening in your life right now. God has allowed circumstances and difficulties to mount up into your life to a point that you find it overwhelming. 
Now, your home may not be burned to the ground and your family members kidnapped, but nonetheless, the trials you are facing right now are more than you can handle. And if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, please hear me, that's by design. God will give you more than you can handle so that, he, so that you would no longer rely on yourself, but that you would rely on him. Hardships are the pruning hand of God to conform us more into the image and likeness of Christ. And indeed, often the deliverance we need in these situations is not circumstantial, but spiritual. This is to say, in the midst of hardship, God wants to deliver us from ourselves and indwelling sin. And I just think these, these opening verses in the life of David and his men just illustrate what we see taught throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament, and that even Jesus himself promised, in this world you will have what? Trouble. So strengthen yourself in the Lord, not yourself. But then second, this text emphasizes that we ought to strengthen ourselves in a generous God because rescue comes from outside of you. Look again at verses 7 and 8. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, pursue for you shall surely overtake and you shall surely rescue. In verse 19, nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. Please note, friend, God is the one who's providing the rescue here. And this is why we need to strengthen ourselves in him. As we talked about before, our greatest rescue is not circumstantial troubles, but from the sin in our hearts. And what we learn from David here is that part of what it means to strengthen ourselves in the Lord is to seek God's guidance, right? And you know, man, it seems so simple, does it not? However, we often fail to do this. I know I do. And as a result, we add trouble to our trouble. Right? As the hymn writer so eloquently put it, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in what? We don't turn to him to seek his guidance. Indeed, you know what happens when we try to strengthen ourselves by ourselves and rely on our own cleverness and wisdom? We become like that ambulance we are actually going to do more harm than good. And then the last thing I just want to draw to your attention, why we ought to strengthen ourselves in a generous God, is because entitlement can overtake you. Verse 22, remember, then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. 
he has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. I mentioned to you earlier, but you know what these worthless men thought? They thought this, I did it, I deserve it. You slackers couldn't make the trip. He just said that, be in the cool shade by the brook. You don't deserve nothing. Faith and entitlement mentality had taken over their hearts. And I just wanted to say just by application, friend, we are not immune from this. This is why we need to be strengthened in a generous God. Because notice what David says here. He corrects these worthless men by reminding them that it is not plunder they have recovered, but rather it is plunder that the Lord has given them. And it's urgent for Christians to see that for David, grace is not some theological concept. But I want you to notice, God's grace is a worldview for him. It's the lens by which he processes and interprets life. Indeed, we hear echoes of what Paul says to the Corinthians when he rebukes them in 1 Corinthians 4, do we not? Remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4, 7? He, what does he say to rebuke the Corinthians? He says this. He says, what do you have that you have not received? That's the same message David is saying. What do you have that you did not receive? Faith for these worthless men, an entitlement mentality overtook them when it came to their work. And I just want to touch here for a moment. Can I ask, where has an entitlement mentality shown up in your life? What do you feel you deserve? What do you feel God owes you? Here's an even better question. What are you bitter about? Bitterness is one of the clearest identifying marks of an entitled heart. So faith, the application here is to believe what David and Paul are teaching us, and that is to view all of life as a gift of grace. Friend, what do you have that you did not receive? You know what the answer is? Nothing. This is to say everything you have is a gift from a generous God. Faith, as we encourage and counsel one another in our small groups and in our interactions and in our fellowships, let's not be like that ambulance by bringing harm to each other, by telling us, you know, look for strength within you. Let us instead point each other to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is strong and kind. Amen? Let's pray.